again, good morning. Welcome to Worship at Calvary. We are so, so glad that you are here with us, whether you're here in the Worship Center, all of you over in the chapel, and all of you at our Minnetonka campus, and then anyone who's watching online. Again, so good to worship together. So today, we are finishing up our series that is called Rooted, and it is based on Paul's letter to the Colossians. And so each week, we've just been taking a little chunk of his letter, and we've been talking about what he's saying to the church, uh, the Colossian church, and then how that also matters to us Today And there's so many great reminders within this letter about who Jesus is and about his amazing grace and about his accomplished work on the cross. And then we've talked about what that looks like then to live out in our everyday lives. And I, I don't know about you, but I've just found this series to be very uplifting and very inspirational. And so thinking about closing out the series, I was excited to dive in and see what God has in store for us. And I started to read the very first verse for our passage today. And this is what it said. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. And I thought, okay, well, maybe it's going to pick up. And then it said, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Okay, so maybe not the most encouraging, inspirational, uplifting passage. You know, actually, this is one of the more confusing controversial and hard passages in the New Testament. And also it's a passage that has been used in some pretty poor ways throughout history. In fact, this is a key passage that once was used to justify slavery. It's a passage that has sometimes, even today, unfortunately, sometimes been used to condone abuse and it's also sometimes been used to try to keep women out of leadership in the church. So again, it's a complicated and a hard passage, not as uplifting and inspirational maybe as we had hoped. But what I want to do this morning is to read this passage with you and then to dig into what God might be saying to us today. So if you have your Bible with you, or your Bible app, I would invite you to turn with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 3, and we're going to start with verse 18. Colossians 3, starting with verse 18. And this is what Paul writes. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, always obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not aggravate your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, and that the master you are serving is Christ. But if you do what is wrong, you will be paid back for the wrong you have done, for God has 
no favorites. Masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. All right. So anytime we come across a difficult passage like we have today, we have a number of options. One option is to just ignore it. I actually had a professor in seminary one time who in a chapel service said we should just tear this page out of our Bible, which is awful advice. Don't ever listen to someone who says that. But that's how some people feel. Other people might say, well, let's just explain it away. You know, this was written 2,000 years ago. It has nothing at all to say to us today. And so we can just pass over it. But then there's people on the other side of the coin who say, nope, you have to implement this literally, straight up. We just have to put it into practice. But I think there's a maybe better and more helpful way to go forward as we look at this passage, and that is to look at the context that Paul is writing into. What is the world like? What is the culture like? What is he engaging with? And then to look at the fuller meaning for us today. And so that's what I'd like to do with you this morning, to look at the context and then to look at the fuller meaning and what God has to say to us today. So in the book of Colossians, again, it's a letter that Paul was writing to a very new church. And he had never visited this church before. He had just received reports from them. Now, Paul is never one to lack advice or conviction, right? He's ready to tell people what he thinks. And he deeply, deeply desired that every church that proclaimed Jesus would thrive on earth. And he had a passion for spreading the gospel, the good news all around the world. But he was also writing into a very specific political and cultural reality, So there was this big, significant development that was happening at this time called the Pax Romana, which just means the peace of Rome. The idea was that Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor, would give peace to the world if everyone would just conform to him. And if you would conform to his authority then he would guarantee security because the Roman army was the largest in the world. And not only that, if you conform to Caesar as the emperor, it also meant prosperity because the Roman economy was the greatest on earth. But then Augustus also recognized that security and prosperity are not enough in and of themselves that in order to thrive as an empire, they also needed to have order. It couldn't just be a free-for-all. And so in order to have order, he believed it was dependent on families. So they invented the concept of the Roman family. Now, this is not probably what you're picturing. This is not two loving parents and 2.5 kids and a white picket fence and a, a dog or a cat. No, this was completely different. We see Augustus believed that orderly conforming families would be the salvation of the empire. And he believed that he was destined to be the father of the empire. He was the model 
of the authority that was needed in everyone's lives. And so he outlawed adultery for the first time in history. And there were all sorts of other rules and regulations to bring order into the family unit. And he proclaimed again and again that what Rome needed to do is go back to the way of the elders. You know, it's kind of like we hear sometimes today, you know, if we would only go back to the 50s and 60s and all of the, the family values, then everything would be so much better. It was that same sort of rhetoric. And so the Roman family or the Roman household had four categories in it. It had the father, the mother, the children, and the slaves. And there needed to be clear rules and there needed to be clear order in order for the family to thrive. So for there to be order, leadership is essential, right? And so there was the idea of the paterfamilias. This was the eldest male in the household who was given all authority over everyone else under the roof. He owned everything, owned the property, owned the home, owned all the resources. But listen to this. He also owned the people. And that meant that he could decide whether or not to keep any children. It was perfectly acceptable to take a young child and just leave him beside the road, to take a baby and put it under a tree, to be eaten by animals or stolen by someone else. At any time, you could sell your kids to slave traders. And again, it was perfectly acceptable. 50% of children born in the Roman Empire never made it to adolescence. And there was no responsibility that anyone had to help them survive. And so the paterfamilias ruled over his children, ruled over his wife, and ruled over their slaves. Slavery was common and pervasive, but it's not necessarily the slavery that we might picture that we've been taught about in our history. One part of slavery in the Roman Empire was through conquest. Whenever there was a battle or a war fought, Whoever won would just take a bunch of the people back to be slaves, hundreds or thousands of people. But even more commonly was something called debt slavery. And that was the idea that anyone could sell themselves or a family member into slavery because of a debt. And if anybody would come and pay off that debt, then you were instantly Free. It's part of the reason throughout the New Testament we're, we're told again and again of this theme that our debt has been paid through the blood of Jesus. It was an image or an idea that was just super tangible to a first century audience. And so again, slaves were so common in the Roman Empire, 30 to 40% of the population was slaves. But as soon as you paid off your debt or someone else paid off your debt, well, then you were free to go. But until then, slaves were also seen as property along with the rest of the household. So this system had been in place for about 75 years when Paul sat down to write his letter to the Colossians and no one dared question it. But Paul saw so many flaws in the system. He knew hope is not found in the empire. It's found in Jesus. Hope is not found in Caesar. It's found 
in Jesus, Caesar could not provide lasting prosperity and security. Only God can provide that. And he also knew that order that's based on fear and mistreatment and dehumanization is not God's design. But you know, when you think about it, I think our culture and our country hasn't progressed a whole lot further than the cultural context that Paul was writing into, right? There's way too many commonalities. Way too many people today believe that hope is found in the government or in our country, and they make it into an idol. Way too many people today still think that prosperity and security can be found in the economy, but then we enter into uncertain times like this, and then where do people turn? We still live in a culture with terrible violence, dehumanization of people, and lives are often treated cheaply and disposably from womb to tomb and everywhere in between. You know, the, really, the problem is, when we take a look at culture, is that Christians, people who proclaim Christ in their lives, are just as guilty in many ways as the wider culture. And so when you read Paul's letters, we have to keep the context in mind. We have to keep this reality in mind and see what, God, what Paul is doing. He's being subversive, and he's being revolutionary, He's taking on the empire with all of its false claims. But he's smart enough to not just write in bold print, Caesar Augustus is a fraud, the Roman Empire will never succeed, or you're destined to fail when you go it alone. No, instead, Paul wants to change the system from the inside. So Paul sent out two other letters at the same time that he wrote the letter to the Colossians, his letter to the Ephesians, and another letter called Philemon. Ephesians 5 and 6 and his letter to Philemon all give more context and give more flesh to what we're reading today in Ephesians. So we're going to look at them side by side. The very first thing, the first category that Paul takes on in our passage, is that he says, wives, submit to your husbands. And again, we have to acknowledge that this has been used in way too many harmful ways throughout history. Sometimes it's used to condone horrible abuse. And we say as a church that that is never, ever okay. We never justify mistreatment of others in Scripture. That is not God's heart for people, for relationships, or marriages. You see, this is not about blind obedience, and it's not about inferiority. No, instead, what Paul is getting at is our need to have a demeanor of respect for each other. Now, at this time in history that Paul is writing, women had no rights. They had no ability to even own property. But Paul isn't trying to blow everything up. He's not trying to do something so crazy that everybody would just throw it away. Instead, he wants to change the structures and the systems from the inside. And so he's much more subtle. And so if we look at Ephesians chapter 5, we see what else he has to say about submission. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, husbands and wives are to submit to each 
other. And the standard for this, this kind of respect and submission that he's talking about, the standard is our reverence for Christ. We are to treat each other with the same reverence that we would have for our Lord Jesus. The standard is not Caesar. The standard is not the empire. It's our faith and our love for Jesus himself. Now, I've often heard it said that marriage should be a submission competition. That if you want to have a successful marriage, then you need to out-submit each other. You should try to out-submit each other in how you love and care and take care of each other. But I think the biggest challenge with this is that we need to stop keeping score. You know what I'm talking about? You know, when we start thinking, well, you got to do this, so then I get to do this. Or, you know, I did this for you, now you owe me this in return. See, I think Paul is challenging us to stop keeping score, to stop thinking about what we deserve or what we earned, and instead we should start keeping track of all the ways that we can serve each other and we can put the other first. Try to outserve and outsupport and outlove and outcare each other and then watch what happens in your relationship. Well, the next category that Paul talks about in our passage is he says, husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Now, again, this was incredibly revolutionary at the time because the paterfamilias had all the power and authority. Now, again, Paul is trying to change from within the structure. So he's being subtle again, but there was no expectation of love whatsoever in the Roman Empire within a marriage. Husband and wives were not expected to love each other. They were simply, wives were simply there to provide children for the family and to build up the Roman Empire. But to this kind of structure, Paul says, no, actually, love is important. You need to love your wives. Don't be harsh. Don't treat your wife like she's your property or that she's not a person. There's no place for abuse or mistreatment or intimidation, all of which was way too common at the time. But then in Ephesians, Paul gives even more color to what he's talking about. He says, husbands, love your wives. But look at this. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. All right, this isn't just do something nice occasionally and check it off the list. This is a sacrificial type of love. Jesus loved us even to his death. And again, this was unheard of. This was revolutionary for marriage and for relationships. But like always, Jesus raises the bar and he challenges us to go above and beyond what we ever expected And this created a revolution that carried out as the church spread. It's what made Christian marriages stand out from the empire. The ability to love one another. Well, then in the next category, Paul addresses children. He says, children, always obey your parents for this pleases the Lord. Some of you parents out there are going to want to take a quick snapshot of that and quote it often, right? But here's the thing. In Paul's context, children were simply seen as property. They weren't even seen as persons at all. 
But Paul is referencing the fifth commandment, which calls all of us to honor our father and mother. Now, for us, that sounds completely normal. But Paul, again, is completely upending the social order. You see, the basis for obedience and honor at his time in history was fear and intimidation. But he's saying, no, actually what we should be looking at is our relationship with God himself. You see, the reason we love others is because God first loved us. The reason we value life in all of its stages is because God is the author and the giver and the creator of all life. But then Paul has a word for fathers. He says, fathers do not aggravate, which is a great word, right? Some translations say embitter. Fathers, do not aggravate aggravate or embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Paul knows that fathers, parents, sometimes can be severe, especially at his time in history. And this can be incredibly damaging and traumatic to children. He knows that parents hold a special responsibility to cultivate the health and well-being and the faith of their children. Again, he's putting things back into their rightful order. Well, finally, Paul addresses slaves and their masters. Now, I think we would all wish that he would just simply say, slavery is evil and wicked. Set your slaves free. But again, Paul is being subversive He's writing within the context of his culture, and he wants to transform the social order in a subtle way. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, slaves and masters are both ultimately accountable to God, first and foremost. And he is telling them that masters and slaves and any other person is all on equal grounds at the foot of the cross. No one is somehow above Another, even Caesar himself is on the same level as every other person. Again, that sounds completely normal to us. That was revolutionary at his time in history. Paul says to every person, no matter who they are, including Caesar, don't forget, never forget that you too have a master who's in heaven. The true head of the family is Jesus Himself, And so Paul writes this short letter to a guy named Philemon. It's a short, short book in the New Testament. And he's writing the letter about a runaway slave whose name is Onesimus. And Paul is able to disciple Onesimus and pour into him. But then eventually Onesimus has to go back home. And so Paul writes a letter to accompany him back to his master, who is Philemon. And the key verses are verses 15 and 16, where Paul writes to Philemon and says that Onesimus is no longer a slave, but better than a slave. He's a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother, a brother in the Lord. Again, Paul is putting things back into the right order. He's reminding us that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't matter what category we're put into in the eyes of the empire. No, God says that we are all on level grounds with Jesus 
as our Lord. And so in all of these relationships, Paul is putting things back the way they should be. God is a relational God, and he cares about every single one of our relationships. And at the core of all of our relationships needs to be love and respect for each other. And that is a total reorientation. In Paul's day, that meant unplugging and rebooting from the Roman family system. But today, it's equally a big deal where we need to give up our rights and our privileges and our selfishness that we so often live into and instead focus on loving and serving others. You see, all of us today, we still need to be reoriented and redirected. And Paul reminds us that we have this new nature through Jesus and it should transform all that we do and our approach to every part of life. And so again and again, as you read through the letter to the Colossians, Paul reminds us who's in charge. And he uses the word kyrio, which is translated as Lord. Now we're used to reading through the Bible and hearing Jesus be called Lord. But what you need to know at Paul's time in history is that the paterfamilias was always called the kyrio. He was the Lord, the authority. And now Paul is saying, no, no, no. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the head of the family. Jesus is our authority. And Jesus models and defines healthy relational values. In Jesus, we learn that order is important, but order needs love. Discipline is important, right? But discipline needs kindness. Justice is important, but justice needs fairness. Families and any other relationship that are strictly based on authority and hierarchy, well, it just leads to severity and harshness. And they easily just become transactional relationships. But Jesus, our Lord, commanded us to love and treat each other with incredible generosity because that's how he chose to treat us first. So church, how might your relationships be transformed if you would prioritize love and respect, serving over being served? Well, finally, there's one more important theme that we find in our passage today. And that's this, every aspect of our life can actually be a picture of the gospel. Your family unit can be a picture of the gospel. Now in Paul's time, many, many of the people lived in tenement housing, piled together in cities with paper thin walls, which meant everybody already knew what kind of husband or wife you were. They knew exactly how you parented your child. And so for the Christians that started to practice a Jesus kind of life, it was like a big billboard to everyone else on a changed life. I mean, treating people with love, it was revolutionary. 
In the same way, our families can be a picture of the gospel. Our work relationships can be a picture of the gospel. When we go to school, our life can be a picture of the gospel. Every single thing we do matters. Look at what Paul says in verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, it's pretty all-encompassing. Whatever you do, work at it with all your hearts as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. I think that's some of the most powerful advice we can be given as individuals. I think it's some of the greatest advice we can be given as a church. These are words that I hope you will write on your hearts today. Let them motivate you and spur you on as you grow in your faith and you grow in your love for others. Let these words remind you day after day that you are a representative for Jesus wherever you go. I mean, we're called to be his hands and his feet no matter where we are. And you know what? There are people all around us who are watching way, way closely to see if what we say we believe matches how we treat others and how we speak to others. But here's the thing. It's, it's awfully hard sometimes to change our behaviors and to change our tendencies. It takes intentionality. It takes purpose. And I was remembering back a number of years ago, my wife and I got to go visit my sister who was living in Seoul, Korea. And one of the customs, the cultural customs that we learned right away is when we sat down for a meal with other people, it was quickly determined who the youngest person at the table was. And whoever that was, was then responsible to keep food on everybody else's plate and to keep everyone's drinks full all the way through the meal. Even when you were done eating, they would just keep piling food onto your plates. It was really important to find out who was gonna serve and who got to be served. Now, we might not quite have that same cultural practice here in America, but I think we have the same tendencies because we like to figure out how we can be served. We like to figure out what we can get more than what we can give. So in Colossians, Paul totally upends the social order and he really changes the questions we should be asking. See, not who can serve me, but instead, who can I serve? Not who can I exercise power over, but rather who can I come under? Not what can I get from them, but instead, what can I sacrifice for the sake of others. Not what am I owed, but what does love demand that I give? And all the while, our motivation shouldn't be power or status or notoriety or benefits for ourselves. No, Paul reminds us in the end, our motivation should be to treat every single person like you would treat Jesus. That includes your spouse, your parents, your children, people who work in the service industry, 
every single person that you meet. Treat them just like you would treat Jesus. And you know, Paul knew that if we would actually do that, well, that has the potential to change the world. And that is truly revolutionary. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the incredible gift of your word, even challenging and difficult passages like we have before us today. God, we thank you that even within the, the difficult and the challenge, the challenge, you speak helpful truth into our lives. You show us how to live a Jesus-filled life. You remind us of what's really important. You remind us that you're in charge and that we're all on equal ground and that your call is that we would love each other well and that if we need to, to see that in action, we simply just need to look at Jesus. And so God, help us as we go into our week in every interaction and in every conversation that we have, help us to remember that we're actually inter interacting with an image of Jesus himself. That when we serve others, ultimately, we're serving you. And so God, help us to put that into practice. Let the people around us notice that we're different, that we live counterculturally. And when they ask us why, give us the boldness to be able to share the hope that we have in you. God, use each one of us living your way to create a revolution in our world today. And so send your Holy Spirit to fill us up and to empower us to be the people you've called us to be. And so God, we trust these things to your care. In the powerful name of your son, Jesus, and let's all say together, amen.